Hi there, you're listening to the Steve Schramm Show, where we train Christians to become confident, passionate servants of Jesus so they can grow in their walk with God and share their faith more persuasively. Welcome to the show. Well, we're not going to waste any time this week. We're going to dive right in, back into our interview, the second part of the interview that I shared a few weeks ago with David Palman on the Faith Because of Reason YouTube channel. Gotcha. All right. So now here's one that's been popular lately. Uh, it would be John Walton's Cosmic Temple view of Genesis and uh, inspiring philosophies, you know, making this popular, well, like he did with process structuralism. Like I never heard of process structuralism before he released his videos on evolution. And then when he released his videos on evolution, making, you know, you know, he's a big, the big Christian apologist YouTuber arguing for process structuralism. Now I encounter it everywhere. Well, it's sort of a similar thing with John Walton's view on the Cosmic Temple. I never encountered this before. Well, before John Walton, because I, I mean, I had heard John Walton right. before. But uh, when inspiring philosophy, Michael Jones uh, took that interpretation. Now he's popularizing that on his channel, and I am running into this. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, John Walton's Cosmic temple view of genesis is just like it's still you can get more details if you want but to basically put it in one sentence it's basically saying that genesis is more about functionality than describing the creation accurately so yeah. i'm curious to hear you know if you have any thoughts or critiques yeah on that. yeah it's um you know it, it's it is a popular it is a popular view these days and um let's face it it removes a lot of the difficulty well, I mean, if you if you can argue for this and affirm this view, then you can escape having to talk about the age of the earth in most cases. I mean, you can just totally say, you know, Genesis is, is about this. I mean, it, in other words, it's attractive. If you're, I, I don't know that he has come out and said the words, I am a theistic evolutionist, right, John Walton. But he's like on the board of Biologos. He talks to those guys a lot. He's, he's publicly said that his view would allow for theistic evolution, etc. So from a theological standpoint, um, it's it's very, very popular. Now, I have to just admit, because of what we talked about in the beginning, I mean, I, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a specialist theologian, um, I made... I went into ministry to this aspect of ministry because I think what's important is to let people know um, about where young age creationist research is. So um, I'm not an expert in, in John Walton's stuff, and I've dialogued back and forth with some guys on this. But, um, f- you know, for me, um, I think that, yeah, I, I don't. I think he's. I think he's wrong. But I, but I certainly think that it's a very popular view because it makes room for theistic evolution. And what I hear, what I hear again, this is hearsay. But what I hear is that the popular writings of John Walton um, go a lot further in what they claim than the technical writing. In other words, I often hear that he'll write something for a popular audience, but then if you go and look at the actual technical papers, his claims are a lot more modest, that that kind of thing. I have heard. I'm just saying that I've heard that. Um, and I so, so he pulls a Bart Ehrman I, on us. I mean, essentially, that, that kind of thing. I mean, I hate to say that. I, I don't like to question people's motives. Okay, I really don't. Um, so I, I don't want to say that he has a bad motive or something like that. But I, I do. I mean, I've heard this now from a couple different people, from people that I do have reason to believe have read pretty deeply into the literature. Um, 
so I guess I'll just say this. Uh, it, it seems to me, again, you did mention, right, this view. I mean, Cosmic Temple is just one aspect of it. Um, it's a big part of it, but it is just one aspect of it. Um, I think that you could probably have some kind of temple motif in the text, but it would relate to the biblical temple. I don't think we need to, to relate it to um, pagan um, uh, temples, extra Israel for certain. But um, yeah, the view essentially is concerned with functional. Sometimes this is called functional creation or functional um, ontology. And he says that it's hard, you know, really uh, to know what was going on there in the beginning because they weren't concerned with the material, but with function. Okay, the problem with this is that's certainly not obviously what's going on in the text. Is function mentioned? Of course it is. But material is mentioned as well. Uh, Bill Craig has done um, quite a bit on this so far, and he references Walton favorably in some things, but on this, he's pretty unforgiving, I gotta say. Um, I just want to read this quote to you. This is uh, a, a quote from uh, uh, Dr. Craig's Defenders class. Um, when he's talking about this view, here's what he says, quote, when it comes to Genesis 1, in order for this text to feature only functional creation, you must imagine that the dry land, the vegetation, the trees, the sea creatures, the birds, all the animals, and even man were all there right from the beginning, but they weren't functioning in an ordered system. It seems to me that such an interpretation is implausible, not to say ridiculous. I wish I could say that in my best Bill Craig voice, but I can't. It would require us to regard as literally false all of the statements about the darkness, the primeval ocean, the emergence of the dry land and separation of the seas, the earth bringing forth vegetation and fruit trees, the waters bringing forth sea creatures, the earth bringing forth animals, and God making man. Now, if he's right about that, think about the implications of having to say that all of those things are literally false because they don't speak directly to the question of function. That seems really difficult to reckon with. So I think that's one um, problem with it. Um, Dr. Craig also argues about how uh, uh, um, Walton kind of confuses the terminology of what it means to be functional versus material, but uh, I'll leave that to the, to the philosophers. Um, um, it also should be noted that evidence seems to be spurious for this in other cultures. Uh, I think that's kind of the whole thing is that this is supposed to be where Israel is bathed in the cultures of the other ancient Near Eastern um, folks. And to be honest with you, I don't think we see that. I don't think that the other ones are only concerned with function. I think there's a lot of material things going on and described in some of the other creation myths, etc. So um, even that being the case, I think that the biblical data needs to be handled on its own merits because of the great difference in worldview. So that's important. Um, uh, the functional ontology view of Walton works in concert with a lot of other things. Cosmic temple, that motif. The archetypal Adam versus a necessarily historical Adam. Uh, there's a strong emphasis in Walton's view, and these are all kinds of things that follow from, from the premise um, that the creation is functional, etc. That uh, the uh, emphasis in Genesis 3 and even throughout the whole redemption story is on order versus disorder instead, really, of, of sin and redemption, righteousness, etc. So um, I think that this view um, of functional ontology is, is at least undermined um, if some of those other things turn out to be uh, either false or unreasonable. And again, uh, I think that the, the biggest thing is that 
Walton just simply hasn't demonstrated. He hasn't been able to demonstrate, I don't think, in, in the Bible that only function is concerned or that even function is, is in view. Um, yeah, it's in view and it is important, but to make the case that that's, you know, exclusive, that function is the exclusive intended meaning of the passage uh, or the passages in question, I, I, I don't know. I, don't, I just don't see that. I think you can just read the text and come away with something much different than that. Uh, last thing I'll say on that is Lydia McGrew. Uh, she's uh, she she dips her toe in a bunch of uh, bunch of different areas these days. She's an analytical philosopher, and uh, I've, I've talked with her a few times. I like her. Um, um, so she has written a pretty. Her and her husband Tim are getting. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. Uh, that's uh, Tim McGrew's wife. A lot of people are going to know know him, and yeah, those are those are some sweet people. And she has written a couple now. Just, I mean, I don't know anybody out there who's familiar with Lydia's writing and her blog post. I mean, you need to get some coffee and chill out for an afternoon if you want to read that thing because it is long and detail but I mean she has written a couple I think I don't know how she does it she must type it 300 words a minute I don't know but she um uh, has written a couple pretty withering critiques of Walton on, on this issue as well. And she's an analytical philosopher, so she might not have specialized training in Old Testament studies or in ancient Near Eastern studies, but you can bet that she understands how to look and evaluate the evidence, etc. So I think her critique is a good read. Uh, her blog is called, I think, just What's Wrong with the World.com or something like that. So easy to find. I'd recommend you checking that out. What's Wrong with the World? Oh, is yeah. It? Oh, I think it's .net. What's Wrong with the World.net is I think how you get to that. And you can search for John Walton and you'll find a plethora of fun things to read. <laughs> yes, uh, Lydia is pretty, she's pretty unrelenting <laughs> when uh, she, she gets to teach yeah. something. Yeah, yes. yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, I'll move on to this one because this is, I don't know if we have to spend a lot of time on this one, but, but um, Psalm 90 uh, says that a thousand years uh, in your sight are like a day that has just gone mm -hmm. by. So in the eyes of the Lord, we hear this a lot that um, we hear that, you know, uh, well, one day to God must be a lot of uh, longer than it is to us because the, the Psalm 90 <laughs> says it. Right. Now, on the, on the one hand, I would be tempted to, you know, toss this aside because, you know, it's the Psalms, you know. You, you don't build theology out right. of the Psalms. Just right. yeah, no. But on the flip, I, I had uh, I had Stephen Meyer point this out, and I found this actually interesting. Yeah. He points out that this is coincidentally the only psalm that's attributed to Moses, and Moses is also the traditional author of Genesis. Right. So it's traditionally believed to be the author of Genesis uh, by you know by conservative Christians, and certainly among young Earth creationists. Uh, you know, even if more conservative. Christians yeah. are more open than Moses didn't. Generally, the young earthers are still going right. to accept it. Right. So basically, if there's any place that Moses was going to give us an indication on what he thought the word day meant, it would be in this psalm. And he tells us uh, that he, you know, looks at it that in God's eyes, it tests a thousand years. So that kind of gave more plausibility with that, to it, at least to me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I'm curious what you think. Yeah, about. Um, okay, two things. Well, the first thing is, if Moses was was going to define what he meant by a day i think he would define it in the text itself in the in the, in the actual context i mean we have to interpret uh via context 
we, I mean, yeah, we use other places in the Bible to, to get things, but the immediate context always is where we get the interpretation from, right? I mean, that's Greg Kokel. Never read a Bible verse. Let's go a few verses before, a few verses after, et cetera, and figure it out. Well, I've already argued, I mean, I think persuasively, um, I used uh, some arguments from different places, but the, the bulk of my argument about the days in Genesis was taken from um, Dr. Robert McCabe. He was the um, former Old Testament professor. He's retired now at... Um, Oh, I want to say it was Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary. So that was what he pointed out that, um, uh, you know, I mean, the word is defined for us um, multiple times in Genesis 1. We have a day. We have a 12-hour period of daytime. We have what would seem to then be a 24-hour period of 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 the, the, the period of time that passes when you have a cycle of daytime and a cycle of nighttime. Whatever time that is, that 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 is a day according to Genesis one. Um, so I think Genesis one defines it. I don't think Moses has to define it in the Psalms. Now you are right. We don't build a theology off the Psalms. The Psalms are highly poetic. That seems to be, or at least it should be, a given. Um, this is um, that kind of language. And again, I would say never read a Bible verse. If you if you go back and look at the passage, I did this. I didn't write write it all down. But if you go back and look at the passage. The obvious implication is it's a theological point that says God is over and above time. He's bigger than you and I. Um, Peter says something similar to this. And uh, th- there's another statement that sounds a lot like this that Moses wrote. And the way Peter says it is, a thousand years is as the Lord uh, is one day, and one day is a thousand years. So it reverses itself back on it. You know, it's just, it's not the kind of thing that is meant to be taken as a literal statement. And, uh, you know, it, it's one way or the other. We have to look at this. It's either to be taken in this wooden literal sense or it's not, okay? Now, in, in a psalm, I think that we should always default to not taking it that way because we understand that the psalms are um, songs. They are theological in nature. They're not meant to convey literal historical points like that in most cases. Um, so let's do a reductio on it. If, if it literally means that a day is with the Lord as a thousand years, etc. If, if, if in God's eyes, one of our days is a thousand years, then that means creation took place over six 1,000-year periods. That's what it would have to mean, I think, right? unless I'm missing the point there. Um, if we were taking it that literally, then that's what we would have to maintain, is that every day was a thousand years. Well, that doesn't match up with what Meyer believes about the history of the earth. So that's that can't be right. But then if it's non-literal, then it's non-literal, and it doesn't mean that. It can't be used to say that a day actually is as a thousand years with the Lord. It can't um, if it's non-literal. So we would have to get the understanding of day from elsewhere. And again, I would recommend the actual historical passage. Uh, anytime we see the word like or as, uh, my wife could probably correct me. I don't remember grammar class that well, but I'm pretty sure that's going to be a simile or a metaphor, one of those two. And these are metaphorical language. It's a comparative um Uh, It's a comparison that is made for a specific purpose. I think the purpose here is theological. And uh, again, the passage is Psalm 90. And I think if you just go read that passage on your own time, you'll see um, that this is not meant to communicate that Moses thought that a day with God in our mind was a thousand years in God's time. Um, God does not operate on a separate time frame than us. I don't see that either. So anyway, um, that's what I would say about that. All right. 
Well then, let's uh, let's turn to uh, the question of yeah, evolution. Yeah. And I know we could <laughs> we could easily do like a series on this. The two of us going off on this, sure. but um, we'll we'll try to keep it as you know reasonably brief as possible. Yeah. Well, you know, without without chipping the audience. But, yeah. Um, and uh, you know, the question yeah. of evolution is. Oh no no no! I, no, you go ahead and then I'll, I'll follow up. All right, so I mean, I was just saying, you know, uh, this is obviously uh, a hot button condition, and this is one I'm probably not even going to disagree with you that much right. on, but but uh, it's going to be just the issue of evolution. Uh, why, why, basically, why ask people to affirm something that science? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so you're right. We we could spend hours and hours and hours talking about this subject. I'm sure. But interestingly, one of the things you'll find about me, and this is if you talk to me online or whatever. Um, which anybody is welcome, by the way. I'm just SW SRAM on all the social stuff. If you want to come find me there, you can, and we'll hash some of this stuff out. Um, I don't have a ton of time, but you know, if, if it looks like you'll be a, a gracious sparring partner, we could talk for a few minutes. So um, I try to distill things down to the most basic, simple understanding of them. I'm not a scientist. I, 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 if I was arguing with... Francis Collins, if Francis Collins was on this call, he would probably tear me up and chew me up and spit me out all day long because I don't understand the inner workings of the science. Um, I, I, I can read it and understand it and have my opinions on it, but I'm not going to be able to argue in as sophisticated a way as the guys that I read, for example, who are scientists and are trained in evolutionary biologists. So I try to distill things down. Um, and here's how I understand evolution. Evolutionary biology is a framework, okay? It is a framework through which evidence can be interpreted. Um, it, there are things that will support evolution that don't necessarily prove that evolution is true, but they lend support for it. It's like I can't stand when people say there's no evidence for this. There are very few things that there is no evidence for. There is some evidence for uh, lots of false views. And I think evolution is one of those things. Now, I think there is a lot of evidence um, that can be marshaled for common ancestry. Um, I don't think common ancestry is true. I have reasons for that. But I think that there is um, evidence that can be marshaled for that. The real question is, is can that evidence be explained in a biblical framework? And I, I think that uh, it, it can. So when we look at evolution, I take this down to be a lot simpler than most people do. We could argue the fine details. We could talk for days about the fine details of common ancestry, etc. Whether the the chromosome two fusion spot, you know, provides uh, sufficient proof that chimpanzees are related to you know to you and I, um, etc. We could talk about those individual pieces of evidence. But at the end of the day, it's a framework for evolutionary, or it's a framework for biological um, classification. That's what evolution is at the heart of it. Therefore, evolution is a philosophy. And just as uh, evolution is a philosophy, so creation is a philosophy. Um, there are scientific details, some scientific details, which will support evolution. Some of those same scientific details will support 
creation. Sometimes evolution and creation make the same kind of predictions, uh, believe it or not. Uh, many times they don't. So these are interpretive philosophies. Now, the, the creation interpretive philosophy for bi biology is called barominology. Um, and this, uh, some, I might by habit say barominology. I've heard it said both ways. I don't know. It's one of those. Uh, the word uh, baramin is derived from scripture. Uh, it simply means created kind. The Hebrew word min um, is thought to, to basically mean kind. It's when the Bible says that something reproduces after its kind or whatever. This is the word that's in view. Bara, of course, is a biblical word. means to create a uh, Hebrew word. So um, this these are the created kind. So the project of young age creationist biology is to find out what the created kinds were. Now, this is ongoing work. I mean, this is the, the term Barominology, the actual, um, the, the method that was developed called barominology wasn't developed until 1992, I think, is when the paper was released on it. So it's new. I mean, scientific terms, I mean, this is new stuff. Um, it was developed by Kurt Wise, uh, and he was working on the, on the shoulders of people who had gone before him, like Frank Lewis Marsh, and there were others in the Seventh-day Adventist community, a lot of the early creation scientists, and a lot of them even today were Seventh-day Adventists. Um, and it doesn't mean that they were wrong, it just means that they were the first ones to tackle this from a scientific perspective, okay? So, um, anyway, he starts on creating this um, method of what is called systematics or biosystematics called barominology. Now today, in evolutionary biology, there's been multiple ones of these over over the um, centuries, one or over the years rather. One, um, uh, one was called evolutionary taxonomy, another one was called phonetics, and the most recent one is called cladistics. Cladistics. If you, uh, if you ever watched a R and Ra debate on young age creationism. He goes on and on and on about this. So, so cladistics. Um, this is the method of bio systematics that is used in evolutionary biology, and the creationist counterpart to this is called barominology. Now, here's why I, I laid all that out. Remember, I told you I was trying to make this as simple as possible, distill this down to the to the real issue. The real issue comes down to what these methods are able to detect. Cladistics, I don't care what anybody tells you, cladistics is in the business of finding continuity. It is in the business of finding similarity. It is blind to meaningful dissimilarity between organisms. And if we look in the Bible, we have clear justification for seeing similarities and differences. Um, just one example is that Israel was okay. It was cool with God for Israel to eat certain kinds of animals and very uncool with God for Israel to create certain other kinds of animals. And this is because there were actual qualitative and even quantitative differences between them. So we have a, we need a method that sufficiently can account for diversity in creation. In other words, evolutionary um, biology, the evolutionary framework, simply finds what it's looking for. If you're looking for continuity and your method only gives you continuity, 
then you're going to find continuity. That's why we can we can make these phylogenetic trees, etc. That's why that's why those who affirm common ancestry can build a tree of life, even if we may disagree with parts of it, etc. But that's why they can build a tree of life that has um, these uh, classifications and these arms going this way and that way that show this relation all the way back to one universal common ancestor. They do it because that's what the method gives them. It's built in. On barominology, we use different measurements of things, and again, there are a ton of these, but different morphological things, genetic things. Um, you know, we look at fossils, and we, we try to classify into these different classifications to figure out if there is diversity so great that we cannot move past a certain line of relationship. Some organisms are legitimately not related to one another. And what young age creationists have been saying for some time at this level through baromenology is that uh, there's a little bit of blurring between the genera of family and order you're used to that terminology on the Linnaean classification system. There's a little bit of blurring there. So sometimes it's the family, sometimes it's the order. But generally speaking, you're not going to get a um, uh, the ability for evolution to occur past the level of family. If you want to define evolution as change that can happen at the species level, etc., fine. I'll, I don't like it, but I'll go along with it, okay? Because you can define evolution that way. You can't move past about the level of family in most cases. That's what so far creationist biosystematics have been showing. Well, I don't want to give you any spoilers, but Dr. Mike Behe, who is not a young earth creationist, he is um, one of the chief proponents of intelligent design. He does affirm universal common ancestry, and yet... His latest book, which is, I think, 300-some pages, called Darwin Devolves, the central point of the book is this. You can't move, genetically speaking, looking at, looking at the biology, you can't move past, in most cases, the level of family, and in some cases, order. So, essentially... We have confirmation for this view from another field, from a specialist in Dr. Mike Behe, from somebody who doesn't even agree on what the creationists have been saying for years now with respect to the baromenological data we have so far. Now, there's a lot more to do, right? I mean, again, I just mentioned that it's still kind of in its infancy. It was only um, invented in 1992 as a method. But we're doing more and more organisms, more and more research is being devoted to it. And so here's what I'm saying. We're able to show that for much of the data that we see, there's a creationist explanation. Even if there's an evolutionary explanation, okay, well, they have their explanation and we can talk about the details of that. But I'm more interested in coming over here and saying, no, there's a creationist explanation for the biological diversity that we see. And if we can show that the Bible seems to discredit evolution um, because of the time factor, if nothing else, then I think that um, we can move forward rationally. Um, so, so that's one thing. Um, you did, uh, you sent me a couple questions ahead of time. And one of the things you said about this is why ask Christians to affirm that evolution is false? Um, do I have time to just read through a quick little list of things that I wrote down about, about why? Just, it's real quick. Yeah, you can. We got about like uh, <clears throat> we got about like 
10-ish minutes left, so oh, no, okay. we still well, got well, to get, we gotta get a move on. You might have to do a two-parter here unless you've got a burger to go eat or something. I don't know. Um, well, I won't read through all of those. We, I think you're going to probably do uh, uh, some videos at some point on theistic evolution, so I will let you um, take charge on that. Needless to say, is I've got a list of probably between 10 and 15 things that I wrote down in about three minutes, literally, of thinking about it, that um, things that have to be true um, almost by necessity if theistic evolution is the case, and I think they are all very bad things. So maybe suffice it to say that. Uh, I, uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not a non-evolutionist because I don't think the data can support it. I don't think the data can support it, but the primary reason is I think that biblically it's a disaster uh, to be blunt. So anyway, there's that. Yeah, yeah, I'm working on an eight-part series. Uh, my first, well, it's going to be on intelligent design, but um my first video should be out probably later this week. And then uh, my second video is going to just be a full-blown critique of evidences for common ancestry. And then the eighth episode is going to be a critique of, of uh, theistic evolution. So awesome. Great. There will be stuff coming out on that. Great. That, but, that's uh, great. Yeah, let's just, um, we, we take short, short answers, short ash on these. Let's uh, do it. Yeah. But, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, science proving the Earth is 4.6 billion years old. I'm sorry, we're not going to have more time for this, but uh, <laughs> no. it's work after this. So. No, no, yeah, no, that's uh, yeah. Fine. But uh, car- carbon 14 dating, uh, ice cores, and starlight problems. Yeah. The brief explanation of those is that car- carbon 14 dating, uh, basically, no, uh, uh, I'm going to botch the explanation, but basically, things half life, and uh, we can measure that. And if we go back, enough we get about 4.6 billion years old for the earth uh with ice cores we know that you know how many layers of ice get put uh in an ice core per year and so by calculating that we get much older than uh, younger creationism will allow for and then uh as far as starlight goes we know how many millions or how fast light can travel and we know it would have taken millions of years for us to be able to see it and since we can't see it it would then follow that the earth is uh yeah sure so um i'm gonna give you the the too long uh don't read or however you say that uh too long to read on it first uh and then i'll go back and answer those briefly i think the most important part of our conversation is um is maybe the way we're going to wrap this up so let let me just be brief about these but um the bottom line is each one of these now let me just say that carbon 14 dating i wouldn't say they necessarily botched the explanation it's just that carbon 14 dating is not what gives us millions of years actually we can't get much past 60,000 years on with carbon 14 dating it's a that's a specific kind of radiometric dating um and actually past 12,000 years or even actually it might be less than that i think in i think in order to reasonably get to about 12,000 years or so because of where we have the oldest living trees um you actually have to use dendrochronology tree ring dating to to confirm those dates it's called calibrating the method and again that's uncontroversial this is what this is what they do so um carbon 14 dating it doesn't really phase creationism that bad actually in a lot of cases it helps us because we have diamonds that are millions of years old that should not have any c14 in them that do we have other organisms other organisms, other organisms, organisms. Oh my goodness, I cannot say that. Other um, deceased, uh, formerly living uh, creatures and such that um, uh, have C14 in them that are supposedly millions of years old, so thus they should not have C14 in them. So C14 is my friend. Um, other methods of radiometric dating, though, 
uh, as well as the starlight problem, as well as the ice core problem. Each one of these, the bottom line, is that they most critiques that I see of the young age view on this assume the assumptions necessary, right, okay, for the old age position to be true. So you can't critique um, young age creationism using old age creationism's assumptions. Um, that leads to straw men very quickly. That, that's not how it works. So uh, with radiometric dating as a broader discipline, for example, um, you know, this is the really interesting question is there are assumptions that go into radiometric dating that um, may not be true. Now, some of those assumptions, and there are three, basically it's that uh, we know the amount of um, daughter versus, and you'll have to look up the technical stuff on this on your own time because we don't have time, but um, basically we have to know that there was a certain amount of what was called the parent element at the beginning. We have to know that there was none of the daughter element in the um, mineral or whatever it is that we're testing. Um, we have to know that there was no contamination over the years, and we have to know that the rate was consistently the same. Um, those first two assumptions are helped out by something called the isochron dating method. Um, and it, I mean, it gives us reason to think that the Earth really is billions of years old, uh, for sure. I mean, if you're taking that data at face value from the isochron method, we, we, could, we could get there. Except that it doesn't address the question of the rate of decay. The question is, is the rate of decay constant, really, over time? And I think that the answer to that is clearly no. Um, most rocks give evidence both of the fact that a long time, radiometrically speaking, a lot of um, decay has occurred. That suggests that these things have been there for a long time, billions of years in some cases. However, those same rocks, the vast majority of them have indicators of youth in them. Um, and we don't have time to get into what those are, but uh, the, the, the rocks uh, and the fossils, et cetera, that you're testing on this stuff, they have indicators both of youth and great age. And the reasonable, most reasonable, I think, explanation of this is that something happened in the past which would have caused those rates to be accelerated. Um, so that, coupled with the fact that just scores of um, examples of inconsistencies in radiometric dating, we can observe. We have rocks where part of the rock dates inconsistently with another part of the rock. We have rocks where different methods give significantly different dates, millions and millions of years, significantly different dates. We have rocks that we know are young. By observation, they formed in our lifetimes that date radiometrically as old again because some of these assumptions so it seems to me that radiometric dating only works flawlessly so to speak on those ones that we don't have definitive evidence in the future or or in the present i should say um are actually young so that is a little spurious to me um but uh, I'm going to recommend resources here in a little bit, and uh, just don't take my word for it. Uh, trust me, there are guys who can argue this much better than me. But the bottom line is this. Even if the one method shows, the isochron method, that two of those assumptions are, are, can be overcome, the one assumption, and it's the crucial one, cannot be touched by the isochron method. And the actual rocks seem to, to tell us that we uh, have indicators of both youth and great age. So we have to work that out. And spoiler alert, creationists think the flood provides an explanation for that. Ice cores, okay, same exact thing, right? The way we understand ice cores has everything to do with our assumptions about how long they were in place and thus how much compression they 
experienced. Um, I think Paul Garner makes probably one of the best arguments I've seen for this in his book, The New Creationism. Um, the real question is whether or not there are inconsistencies internally with the old age position versus the young age position. And um, what he has shown in that book is that on the old age position, you know, we're supposed to have somewhere around 50 ice ages that have happened over the course of earth history, but they have trouble demonstrating how the conditions would be sufficient to produce even one, even one. So the ice core, we can't even talk about the ice cores until we talk about whether or not the thing was possible for it to even happen. And on creation, we think we do have a pretty good explanation for why uh, a single ice age, we think there was only one happened, um, and, uh, and it followed the flood. So I'd encourage you to check out that resource for that. Uh, ice cores proper aren't, aren't the problem. Um, I think the data can be better explained by a creationist scenario. Finally, starlight. Um, this is just another scenario where uh, you have to look at the assumptions that go into what you're looking at before the evidence can be properly assessed. So any critique of recent creationism using Big Bang assumptions uh, just aren't going to work. The question is, is there internal inconsistency? Is there good evidence for a Big Bang? Yes. Uh, is there legitimate evidence in our universe that is puzzling on Big Bang cosmology? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, there are definitely those things. So it might be internally inconsistent. So then we have to look at the creationist angle, and there is no creationist consensus on the starlight issue. There are probably four or five right now that are in the mainstream that are getting, you know, we're, we're starting to work there. They're working towards it. Um, each, you know, every few years we have what's called the International Conference on Creationism, and that's where all the smart guys get together and talk for uh, a couple days. But um, there are a few theories that are perfectly consistent with what we know about um, the universe. They're consistent with relativity. Um, they're biblically consistent. They don't impugn the character of God, etc. So um, I guess I would just say that don't, don't critique these things or don't allow yourself to be persuaded by critiques of these things that use the assumptions of the other view. Read um, what the view entails. Read what kinds of things would be the case or could be the case on young age creationism. Read the people who actually put papers out, real scientific papers, um, and talk about these things. Um, and, 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 and take their arguments on the basis of the assumptions of the view. That's how we have to do these things or else we're just talking past each other. And I think that's a lot of the problem. I would say this, um, with respect to the starlight issue, you could read a paper on creation time coordinates that was written by um, uh, Tikamir Tenev, Mark uh, Horstemeyer and John Bumgardner, all three really smart guys. And I think it's uh, my podcast. I have a podcast series, two-part podcast series on that creation time coordinates. I, my personal opinion is that they're the closest to, to right with respect to starlight, but there are other theories and um, some of those are good too. So, All right. And so then just to, uh, to wrap this up, uh, tell us why young earth creationism is important, uh, why you think it's having trouble being accepted, and then you can just go from there into recommended resources. Absolutely right. And, and by the way, let me just say a little something um, um, about this idea uh, of the assumption. The crucial assumption that really takes place is this uh, attachment. Um, in, in old age uh, circles, whether they be conventional or Christian, etc., um, there is this attachment to uniformitarianism. And we have to learn to separate the uniformity of nature from uniformitarianism. 
if uniformitarianism is not the case, then there is no problem accepting any of the claims. Um, I don't want to say such so broadly, but most of the claims of young age creationism are perfectly fine and consistent if we can reject uniformitarianism. So that's the key. That's the key assumption that feeds all the other assumptions. I think the Bible um, suggests that uniformitarianism is false, so that's where we go. Um, um, why, why is young earth creationism important? Uh, I think the question of age matters. I mentioned earlier that there are some organizations who talk about age. Some people talk about design. Uh, everybody has their own kind of thing. I think that um, because the implications from a historical reading of the Bible tell us something about the age, I think it matters. I think that death before the fall matters. Um, I mean, if you can explain that away biblically, or explain, I don't want to say explain it away, but if you can explain that differently biblically, then fine, you know, we can talk about that. But I think the Bible is clear that there was no death before the fall. And if that's the case, then old age creationism of any sort has to be wrong. So that's why um, it's important. Um, one of the things you asked is, why is it having trouble being accepted? Um, well, I guess as we wrap this interview up, I'll just go ahead and make everybody mad all at once. Hopefully that sounds good. So, um, I think it's three things. First, young earth creationist popularizers today, many of them come across as jerks. They make grander claims than they should. And they treat those who espouse other views like they are aiming to reject the Bible. Um, I said earlier, I don't want to question people's motive. Um, all I'm going to say further about that is when we question people's motives, we get into trouble. We really do. Let's make an effort as young age creationists, anybody who's listening and a young age creationist, let's make an effort to understand everybody else and make sure that we don't sacrifice that, that beautiful relationship that we can have as Christian brothers and sisters fighting for the same cause over disagreement on this issue. The second thing, and here's where I say I'm just going to make everybody mad, there is a constant unwillingness that I see to engage with young age creationist ideas from those who hold to other views. I, I talk to so many theistic evolutionists and, and, and old age creationists of different sorts who, who pontificate publicly all the time about why young age creationism is wrong, but they will admit to me that they've never read it. They've never read the literature. Um, there are lots of of um, scholarly. There's 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 evidence of this in scholarly circles. For me, a lot of it is simply anecdotal. Um, uh, there are, are lots of popularizers guilty of this. I spend a lot of time correcting people's false ideas about what creationists believe. Um, if all I listened to myself, if all I listened to was old Earth creationist popularizer, popularizers, um, I would be skeptical of young age creationism too. I don't blame you. Um, find out who the reasonable and well-argued and gracious young age creationists are. I'm about to tell you some. Engage with their ideas and the research. Even if you disagree, at least engage with the best version of it. Um, and my final point where I'm making everybody mad is this. There's a ton of intellectual snobbery in Christian academia. Um, even people who I greatly respect, I regularly listen to them, um, they disagree on this topic and they demonstrate their ignorance constantly. Um, I just don't know a nicer way to say it. Um, just be more open. Like seriously, be open to this, like I mentioned in the beginning. Abrasiveness and motive questioning is wrong, but so is high-mindedness, right? It's all, 
that's why we can never have a discussion around this without it being atomic. Um, Ken Ham and Kent Hovind, whatever your thoughts on them, they do not speak for all of young age creationism, even if they're the loudest voices. Uh, okay, don't write it off before you engage with um, some better resources. Uh, get another perspective on the issue. Um, do I have time to, to say just what some of those resources might be real quick? Yeah, okay. absolutely. Okay, great. Um, and I'm hoping you'll, uh, maybe I can get you a list with links, et cetera, but I'm, I'm really hoping if you wouldn't mind putting this list in the description on the video, that would just be really helpful because I really, truly want yeah, people shoot, shoot. To, to engage shoot with me any, Shoot me an email after this and I, I, can, I can put it in the description. Okay, okay, I will. Um, here's the, mo I'm telling you the most important one first. Um, it's $10. Um, I know everybody doesn't have time to do this, okay? Not everybody has time to do this. But let me urge you, if you're listening to this, and you are someone who publicly writes, speaks, podcasts, anything of that sort um, against young age creationism. I'm okay if you popularize your view, etc. If you're going to start a critique of young age creationism, I beg you to please go to isgenesishistory.com, purchase, I think it's under the watch tab, or maybe it's, it's under the shop tab. It says 70 plus creation lectures. It's the IGH Educators Conference from um, um, 2017. Um, most importantly from this conference, there are two videos I think you have to see. They're from Kurt Wise. One's called The Age of Things, and another one is called The Fossil Record. Kurt is a PhD paleontologist from Harvard who studied under Stephen Jay Gould. He knows his stuff. Um, uh, the bottom line is I want you to go, if you're going to popularize against young age creationism, go watch the 74 videos. They're almost all an hour long. Not all of them. Most of them are almost an hour long, if not a little more, with, I think, the best voices. Um, these are the people who I trust with the message of young age creationism for the most part. Um, it's literally the most data-packed, research-packed, etc., from, uh, from a gracious tone that you can possibly get. And you're not going to get any more information in this pack, um, any, any more information from reading papers and stuff than, you'll, than you can get in these videos. And I think they're just great. So if you do nothing else, if you're going to pontificate against this view, check out the Is Genesis History conference. Just go to isgenesishistory.com and you can get those videos there. Um, some of those videos are available on YouTube. So again, you can check those ones out for free. And I still encourage you to buy the rest. Um, uh, just a couple other things. Uh, the New Creationism. It's a book by Dr. Or I don't think he's a doctor, but um, I think he's master's in engineering. or No, it's a... Um, biogeography or something like that. It's, it's a book called The New Creationism. Uh, super, again, gracious guy, well-argued, gives um, the most accurate view of young age creationists as of 2010. Anyway, um, The Quest, written by Todd Wood. You need to read that to get a, a, an idea of the attitude of most modern creationists, the ones that aren't the loudest voices yet, but the ones that are making a big impact in academia with respect to creationism. Uh, so that's The Quest by Todd Wood. Faith, Form, and Time. It's a book by Dr. Kurt Wise, who I mentioned a minute ago. You got to get that. It's old information, 2002, 2003, but still some of the best stuff out there on creationism. 
And, uh, you know, th- those are the ones I truly wanted to, to, to mention. There are others in the list, um, but for time's sake, I won't mention those. I'll give those to you, and other people can check those out. Um, but those are the main things, and specifically that conference, the Is Genesis History Student and Educators Conference, is, is going to give you the information that you need to accurately represent young earth creationism or young age creationism when you're speaking in public about it, when you're thinking about it, and when you li- read other people who have things to say against it. That's where you're going to get the best stuff uh, from all angles, science, theology, biblical studies, archaeology, the whole nine. All right. Well, thank you so much, Steve. Uh, we've been happy to have you on. And uh, thank you. Don't sir. you all forget to uh, yeah. Don't you all forget to like, share, and subscribe. And uh, yeah. Hey, Amen. I, I just want to say, I really, really, David, I really appreciate it. This has been great and a wonderful opportunity. You doing this uh, says a lot about you and your character. And uh, I hope that this is what this is what discussion on this issue looks like for a long time to come. So thank you, thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thanks. Bye bye. <laughs>